Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat. Do you want to hear a funny story? I always love to hear a funny Nadia story. They're always the best. This one actually involves my husband and I. We've been streaming a bit over at uh, twitch.tv forward slash uh, Nightworks. That's N-Y-T-W, how you spell works. And (laughs) (laughs) it's late. What can I tell you? I'm tired. And we're kind of working at the kink, so don't come over expecting any technical marvel yet. But I decided, okay, well, I'll, I'll stream some Final Fantasy XIV. And we were having trouble with the computer, so we decided, okay, we'll stream it through the PlayStation, no problem. And we kept getting no picture. Uh, it would tell us, like, no picture, uh, audio's fine, and realized, what's going on? What's going on here? It turns out Squaresoft still blocks intro movies from Final Fantasy XIV, blocks the title screens, blocks everything until you start playing. What the hell? It's, what year is it? It's 2021. Why are they still doing that? I couldn't believe it. They did that with Persona 5 as well. Yeah, but Persona 5 is newer than Final Fantasy fourteen, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Don't do that. I can go on YouTube any old time I want and look up your movies. It's not hard. That's why you need a capture card, Nadia. Uh, seriously. I mean, I think, I mean, I have an Elgato, and I think I figured out the problem I was having is our USB cord is not powerful enough or something. Mm. So if I switch that out, I think I'll get everything running the way it should be. Because everything works fine through the computer. It's just that one connection problem I'm having. Everybody should go watch Nadia's stream. Yeah, you should. It's uh, every Thursday around eight, no, around six p.m. ET. But I, I always put out a call on on Twitter before I, we do anything. So uh, keep up with me at Nadia Oxford. And if you want to keep up with me, I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and I stream from time to time at twitch.tv slash TV. We also have a Patreon, Nadia, as you may know. I've seen some people being like, God, when I listen to this episode, it's always like really late on the news. I don't understand. Well, my dear friendos, if you want to (laughs) remedy that, you should listen to our premium feed, which you can get to for just five bucks a month, and you'll be able to hear all of the news on time. It's pretty cool, actually. That's a that's a pretty cool tech we have going on there. News as you as it happens. At least with the old news, we you get you still get to hear us complaining about things. So that's not. I know. Bad. Well, you're catching up with the RPG news in one way or another. So there you go. And to be honest, um, I think that's good because since I've stopped writing regularly for games, I've been a little bit behind here and there. You haven't. No, I write the news over at IGN.com, which. Also, I was invited into their super secret Nintendo voice chat Slack channel over the past. Oh, yeah. I'm jealous. Do you hear any, do you hear like cool, like, is there like chanting in the background and the sounds of blood sacrifices? <laughs> nope. Just all the hot goss around Nintendo, which oh. I hopefully will be on that podcast relatively soon. But also, Nadia, we just finished recording the Pantheon of the Blood God episode for Terranigma. We did. That was I know I always say this about the Pantheon episodes. That was a really good episode. It was really in depth. It wasn't just about Terranig, but it was a lot about Quintet in general, which I'm always happy to talk about Quintet. And I've been meaning to do a very in depth Quintet podcast someday. And we recorded a special episode with Emily Vanderwerf of Vox, in which I wrapped up my watch of Neon Genesis 
Evangelion. It was a fantastic conversation, if I do say so myself, in which we talked a lot about things that have not really come up in previous Evangelion podcasts. It's a unique conversation. It's a free-flowing conversation. And I think you should definitely go watch it. All the people who listen to it over on our Slack have been talking about how much they loved it. So that's available to our $5 patrons. And hey, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, guess what? If you subscribe for the entire year, you get 10% off. So some nice savings right there. What a savings, Nadia. That is smart spending. I approve of, I approve of that spending. I am a little loopy right now because I had a very long week and I'm spending my week in podcasting just for you. Yeah, so I'm freelance, so I have long lost the very notion of weekends, but you're you work full time and you work on the weekends. That's pretty uh, dedicated. Yes, I enjoy having two full time jobs. But meanwhile, I'm tweeting about how I should start my own newsletter. And I'm like, because I'm not busy enough. No, of course not. You, you got to keep on going. Got to fuel that fire, cat. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. The blood god demands it. Speaking of what the blood god demands, Nadia, what is your sacrifice on the altar of gaming to the blood god this week? Uh, I'm still playing quite a bit of Shin Megami Tensei 3 HD Nocturne remake, whatever they're calling it. I keep forgetting. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I did write all over Twitter, F Matador, because, well, I think every SMT3 fan will know what my problem was there. He's a, who he's one heck of a, a difficulty spike. So, but I got him down. All I really had to do was figure out how to uh, uh, spam, like, uh, or rather how to defend myself against force attacks. That's the main thing. I recruited a couple of demons that are, that actually absorb force, uh, Nikomata included. So if you uh, if you're going up against Matador, make sure you get a Nikomata. Those are the little cat ladies with the long, scary claws. Make sure to get a Nikomata check because I just got a copy of SMT3 Nocturne HD remake for my Nintendo Switch as well. So I guess I'll be playing it too when I have a minute. Yeah, you'll probably like it. It's a almost relaxing, except when you're going up against Matador and he's screaming about menorahs, which is the funniest thing to me. <laughs> I'm like, I have one. You can have it if you want. I never use it because I'm afraid the cats are going to knock it over. <laughs> just, I'll give you mine. It's covered in wax. No, he wants the menorah of power. So I had to fight for the menorah of power with Matador. I, Matador. Also, the dreidel of power. <laughs> that would be amazing. You know what I can do? I can actually make a dreidel spin on its handle. That's a little trick I learned. Whoa, that's really yeah. amazing, Nadia. I want Isn't to learn cool? your tricks. That's pretty easy. Well, Nadia, I have been playing a not RPG. Blood God, forgive me. I have been sucked into Returnal, which owes something to an RPG-adjacent genre, which is the roguelike genre. So uh, how much do you know about Returnal, Nadia? You know what? I think I remember seeing it during one of the state of plays, and I thought it looked pretty creepy and interesting. And since I'm getting my PS5, hopefully this week, um, it might be something worth buying by the sounds of it. It sounds like something I might like. It's by Housemark, who are best known for making arcade games back in the day, like Super Stardust HD. And it is a real showpiece game for the PlayStation 5. I've been playing on my fancy new 120 FPS monitor. And I mean, you can't, this game does not run in 120 FPS, but it still looks freaking phenomenal great particle effects, great animation for the characters. And the whole 
the whole conceit is that it's basically a roguelike like Hades, but it is much more beautiful. It's the AAA blockbuster. And in many ways, it's kind of the game that I've been waiting for, but I didn't even really realize it. And <laughs> it it addresses a lot of my problems that I have with a lot of AAA games these days, which is it's very unforgiving, which I think is a mark in its favor rather than a notch against it. And it's, as I already mentioned, gorgeous. But also, I really like that it has kind of an arcadey feeling. Whenever I play it, I just think to myself, thank God cover shooters are dead. <laughs> cover shooters. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a fun thing to think while you're playing. Um, I really, of course, adored Hades in my game of the year last year. And the problem with me and roguelikes is sometimes I love them and sometimes I'm just like, eh, I'll pass. So I'm not sure where I will fall here, but I do think maybe it's worth giving a try. I do think Hades is better. Mm, um, Hades is a, is a masterpiece, frankly. But I think that Returnal, I, I'm interested to keep playing Returnal because it has a really spooky atmosphere to it. And mm -hmm. you're trapped on this alien world. You're trying to figure out how to get off. You're trapped in a time loop every time you die it's kind of a live die repeat situation every game is live die repeat now they have to have the whole conceit where it's like well let's explain why this character keeps dying and resurrecting every single time uh so it was the same case with death stranding they had to find a reason that you would be coming back to life every time so yeah fair enough i mean if you're on an alien planet spooky alien things sometimes happen it does sound like atmosphere wise like my my jive i don't like being scared, but I still do it. I'm kind of stupid that way. It's not scary. It's spooky. There's a difference. That's that's good enough. And it's so fast paced. Like you're constantly dashing around, dodging, shooting your laser guns and everything. And I just really enjoy the pace of it. Please. Delete I all. am glad that the PS5 finally has like a real standout exclusive game. And it's so different from what you'd expect. Hmm. In uh, a system exclusive to B. And frankly, uh, I don't know if you saw Ratchet and Clank. Uh, that's looking pretty cute. That's looking pretty cool. Ratchet and Clank's looking gorgeous. I don't think I'm going to play it, but it's looking gorgeous. Yeah, I am not really a fan. Not to say I, I don't like it or anything. I just It was just never a, a franchise that I really got deep into. But I'll probably give this one a try. It looks really, really nice. It's a super souped up PS2 game, effectively. Exactly. Not a bad thing. We play souped up PS2 games all the time. Heck, you're playing SMT3 Nocturne as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> that's as souped up as it comes. But Ratchet and Clank has never been that much of a thing for me. But I think Returnal is a very clever game, and I recommend it so far. So I am enjoying it. One game that I'm that is also out right now that I am not playing is Pokemon Snap, which... I asked for a code, but Nintendo is being quite stingy with the codes, unfortunately. Oh, Nintendo. That's not very nice. I am on the fence about Snap because I, I do think I really want to play it. And I'll probably cave at the end. It's just a matter of I, I have so many games right now that I'm trying to balance at once. Mm -hmm. And I was never a huge fan of the first one. But the point is, I really love the idea of the second one and how apparently in-depth it gets into the Pokemon world and you get to see the Pokemon. I saw a really, really cute sequence where a Sharpedo was chasing a little tiny Squirtle. And the Squirtle jumps on a Lapras's back and the Lapras just like roars at the uh, Sharpedo who kind of slinks away. I thought that was very cute. I would pick up new Pokemon Snap, but I'm currently in the middle of Returnal and that's kind of my game. 
I'm still playing mm. a little bit of MLB The Show. I'm currently playing Monster Hunter Rise and Castlevania. Castlevania. Uh, the, that other game, Resident Evil, is coming out next week. <laughs> oh, Big Vampire Lady's coming, eh? Yeah. yeah. I can't wait to play it. It's so, I don't think it's going to be that long. So I'm going to just knock that game out. That's another next-gen showstopper. So I'm finally... Yes, absolutely. I'm putting my PS5 through its paces, finally. Well, I'm glad that my PS5 is arriving, uh, knock on wood, at just the right time. Right now it's stuck in a facility somewhere in Burlington, which means it got over the border. Yay! And it's down the street, technically. The digital in- one. Yeah, the digital one. Uh, but hey, it's something. And frankly, I just download all my games now. Me too. Honestly, though, I really like being able to have all of my PS4 games just yeah. there on my PS5. And then I have the Steelbook version of P5 Royal, and I'm going to stick that disc in the P, uh, PS5 at some point. So Hell yeah. That sounds very... Uh, <laughs> very- the way you put that. <laughs> I'm going to stick it in there. I'm going to stick that it- disc in there. <laughs> And magical things are going to happen. The cool thing about the P- uh, about the PS5 is that the load times are basically like nil. Like when I'm playing Returnal, it's just so smooth and so fast. Oh god, I am so looking forward to that. You have no idea. Like it's going to be such a jump for me from my regular PS4. Finally getting to places in Final Fantasy XIV without waiting for like a minute for a freaking city to load. It's going to be great. And it's so quiet, too, compared to the PS4, which, <laughs> by comparison, the PS4 sounds like a jet engine, honestly. Mine sounds like a poor thing. So I'll eventually get over to new Pokemon Snap, but I think it's definitely a lower priority than a lot of the games that are coming out right now, because we're having a bit of a glut at the moment. That's the problem. Yeah, right now it is very much glut city. I will say, though, there's some really interesting discourse around the Pokemon Snap graphics and what that might mean for Pokemon Legends and everything else coming out. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I'm looking... For, I, you know, I, I love Pokemon Worlds. Snap is everything I like about Pokemon, which is the Pokemon and the world they live in, so I will eventually pick it up, maybe even after this podcast, because now I'm like, oh, God, why haven't I picked it up yet? I'm so stupid. I'm going to climb on my soapbox and say that we spend way too much time obsessing over the graphics for Pokemon. Oh, absolutely. The point but... of Pokemon is not the graphics. The point of Pokemon is A, the cuddly character design, and B, the stats. That is why <laughs> you play the Pokemon. <laughs> yes, it can render the world in a kind of a nice artistic way, but everybody who wants this ridiculous top-end experience, you're just not going to get it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't want a top-end experience by any means. Frankly, I'm still one of the people who think that Sword and Shield look pretty good and the expansions look really good so i am happy that they're that game freak is finding its footing but i'm not expecting like hyper high fidelity stuff here i'm, I'm not like that um i did really like the style they used for the movie though i think that was fantastic in 2003 pokemon ruby still had static sprites for god's sake there was a lot of pushback against that i remember yeah so i mean in many ways pokemon has never been a technological powerhouse and that's fine no no and I think people forget that. I think maybe the exception was black, white, hard gold, soul silver. Those looked really good for what they were doing. But yeah, it's never been a, a showcase for the systems they're on. No, Sword and Shield looked really good. Yeah, I liked. I really like the models they use for Sword and Shield. I think the the new Pokemon have don't care about your design. stupid tree. Sword and Shield looks good, <laughs> especially the DLC. I promise the trees look a lot better in the DLC. They look great. All right, that's enough ranting about Pokemon graphics. Let's talk about the news, Nadia. 
first item of business. It says Nadia's mortal enemy, Nino Kuni 2, has been raided for the Switch and she'll probably play it all over again. Nadia, don't do that. <laughs> Can't help it. Everyone has one of those games. That's mine. Although I never finished the original, so maybe I should just do that instead. Just play the original. It's much better. I am so sad that I really tried to interview someone at Bamco about that game's connections to the talisman and no one would respond to me they would say no we're not we're not interested in talking to you about this i just ah one of my favorite fantasy books of all time just a game linked up so closely to it i had so many questions and they'll all go unanswered for the rest of my life i'm sure we talked about this in the actual episode but what are the connections to the talisman uh both are basically about a child who can flip between a real world a fantasy world he has to find an item to restore his mother and then his mother is like connected to kind of the health of both worlds and he has to travel to bring it to her and there's an evil evil queen or king i can't remember and there's like everyone has a twin mm -hmm. in uh the opposite world except for the people who are special for different reasons so yeah it's, it's they're the the similarities are, are very much there and of course you have the uh, the companion tagging along whereas um, Nino Kuni has Drippy. Uh, the talisman has Wolf, who's like kind of a werewolf. Oh, interesting. Well, T-I-L. T-I-L, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm just really kind of sad about that. Uh, it's, a, it's by far one of the best fantasy books ever. You should read it. They kind of retconned it into the Dark Tower continuity, which I'm just kind of eh about. But yeah, the original's great. So the Stephen King equivalent of The World Ends With You being randomly folded into the Kingdom Hearts continuity. <laughs> it just happened that in final fantasy 7 hey here's zach hi zach how you doing speaking of beef from the u.s gamer days i was just reminded that of how mad i was that dragon quest builders 2 was in the top 100 games of the decade <laughs> and now it's coming to xbox game pass isn't it i suppose it is um yeah. my friend uh alicia who i don't think listens to this podcast but shout out to her she is a big Dragon Quest Builders 2 fan, so she yes. was playing it the other day and extolling its virtues, which opened that whole can of worms all over again. That was such a great game, and now that it's coming to Game Pass, I'm worried I'm going to get sucked back into it. Can I just say that, as so I go back and forth a lot about like what console I really like. Like I like all uh -huh. three of them for different reasons, but right now I'm much more up on the PS5 than I am on my xbox because it's like yeah it's cool that the xbox is getting a lot more 120 fps games it's cool that game pass exists and that it has a ton of games to play but frankly what the heck am i playing on it outside of yakuza like a dragon which is now available on ps5 <laughs> just a lot of old games that's what i'm playing on it well you know what though there's going to come a point where we are going to be talking a lot about the xbox and the bethesda games and fable and everything that's going on there it's just a matter of time oh it's true there are like eight rpgs in development for the thing it's crazy watch them all come out at once then we'll die apparently there's a rumor that io interactive is working on an rpg as well yeah i heard that that's pretty crazy man everyone wants to be an rpg these days well i mean i wonder why it's the best genre <laughs> It's always been the best genre, and people are only now realizing it. I am happy. Continuing on to the next news update, Nadia Persona 5 Strikers is doing well. It's sold 1.3 million copies worldwide, but not as well as Age of Calamity, which sold 3.7 million copies. But then again, Persona is not the same as Zelda. Zelda is much more popular. And also, that was like yeah. the only Switch game that came out that holiday. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah, that was a bit of a bear holiday for Nintendo. Yeah, even though it did not quite touch Zelda's numbers, I don't think anyone expected it to. I think that uh, what was 1.3 million is actually very good for a Mosu designed around Persona, which is still, a, even though it's, it's a much more popular than previous Persona games, it's still a little bit of a niche. It's kind of amazing to me how little, how little crap Nintendo got for the lack of games that came out last year. I guess maybe people were considerate of COVID because mm. I know that that was at the back of my mind. It's like, oh, well, I'm kind of mad these games are coming out. On the other hand, what are you going to do? Everyone's doing their best. And the fact that we're getting games during a plague is kind of amazing. Yeah, Monster Hunter Rise is basically not finished right now. They're rolling out the end of the game in May. Yay. So, <laughs> so there you go. At least at least it's happening. At least we can update games these days. Um, there was just a major update, though, wasn't there? 2.0. Yes, it just came out. Uh, I'm still on... We are, we're just wrapping up level six in high rank right now. So we haven't quite reached the, the new monsters yet. There's a part of me that's a little disappointed because they're just going with the Elder Dragon thing again. And at least at least one of them is just a recycle from Monster Hunter World, which is the Tiesto, I believe its name is. So it's like, oh, good. I get to fight that thing again. But there's a cool chameleon monster. That's neat. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty cool. I mean, hey, chameleons are awesome. But yeah. you know what is coming soon is Monster Hunter Stories 2. And that's oh, yeah. looking really good. <laughs> I am excited about Monster Hunter Stories 2. I was watching the story trailers. I was like, that's really pretty. It's a really fun little Pokemon alternative. I mean, you ride around on a Rathalos and he's your friend. What more do you want out of life? Yeah, all the monsters are your pals instead of being killed. That's kind of nice because I still feel kind of guilty about well, not just killing monsters, but riding on them so they kill other monsters. <laughs> monsters are friends, not food. Monsters, no, they're not food so much as they're armor and food. You know what I think of when I play Monster Hunter uh, in general? The, I think of a particular song. Mm. Some men hunt for sport, others hunt for food. <laughs> is it the only thing I'm hunting for? Is it an outfit that looks good? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that is Monster Hunter's national anthem. But yeah, I'm looking forward to Monster Hunter stories, too, in general. It's very pretty. It seems to have a nice little battle system. I think it gets kind of overlooked over here because Monster Hunter still isn't that popular, but it's becoming more mainstream. And now that Monster Hunter is kind of a thing, I think a lot of people are willing to take a look at it. I'm certainly going to be playing it when it comes out here. Yeah, I liked the original game quite a bit. That was actually my first real Monster Hunter game. I had tried the series before that and never really got into it uh, until World gave me a bit more of an more of an intro to it. But yeah, until then, I was just like, hey, I like this world. I like these monsters. I'm not killing them, but I'm still interacting with them. And I think that's really neat. And finally, we got a little bit more news about the Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrade, which is coming out next month. And we learned that apparently Yuffie's Moogle costume is a callback to Dirge of Cerberus, Nadia, because why would we want to remember that game? Oh, I have Jesus. no idea, but Square operates in mysterious ways. I did not play Dirge. I just heard the lamentations from my friends. So I do not remember the Moogle costume at all. I do know Yuffie was a big part of the game. God, they could have done so many cool things with that game, like not make Sephiroth's mother a total washout, but... What are you going to do? 
Yes, the compilation of Final Fantasy existing makes me sad on a regular basis. It's a great example of a wonderful and mysterious story being explained to death. It'd be like if Evangelion got a billion spinoffs and four feature films that we don't really need. Oh, wait. Crap. (laughs) (laughs) Da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. The thing that really surprises me is that Square is calling back to this garbage Nobody liked George's Cerberus, and Square's like, oh, yes, you do, and they open your mouth and shove it down your throat. Yeah, they're doing that entire mobile game. It's like, we're bringing it all back, baby. It's all going to be it here in this mobile game. All of the lore that you've been missing. Uh, I was just thinking the other day about how what an elegant and mysterious ending Final Fantasy VII originally had. The three main people who made Final Fantasy VII, Kitase, Nomura, and Hashimoto, seem to see themselves as the keepers of the lore of Final Mm. Fantasy VII, based on the interviews and such that I've read. And they're very, very invested in this crazy world that they have created for it. So you better believe you're going to be playing through Dirge of Cerberus again in a mobile form, gosh darn it. Oh, gosh. And the thing is, with that mobile game, is it kind of looks like a remake of Final Fantasy VII that I'd like to play. It looks kind of neat, but it's going to be free to play. So I don't know what they're going to, I don't know what they're going to thrust upon me because of that. I will play it. Just not. Oh, I'll much. give it a try. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Nadia, Yuffie won't have a chance to steal your materia. Oh, good. As long as she keeps away from my materia, we can get along. Maybe later in like episode two, because it seems like this is the lead up to how she meets Cloud's party. So maybe she'll steal it in episode two. Maybe she'll steal it before episode three. Like that'll be the cliffhanger. Ooh. <laughs> our materia. But will you f- we will we get our materia back from Yuffie? Stay tuned for episode three coming in twenty thirty. Find out next time in Dragon Ball Z in twenty thirty. Yeah, basically. All right, that's all of our news. Let's continue on to our main topic. Don't go away. Hey RPG fans, it's your friend Cat Bailey, host of Axe of the Blood God, and I'm here to tell you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Every single month we have exclusive RPG goodness for all of our listeners, including tributes to classic games, watches of shows like The Witcher, and of course our Pantheon of the Blood God, in which we explore classic RPGs from Final Fantasy VIII to Skies of Arcadia. Here's a glimpse of what you have been missing. The other thing that kind of defined Terranigma was its sheer scale and its scope. And this was a thing that was kind of common on Super Nintendo RPGs circa 1995-96. I would say Dragon Quest VI was a really big RPG. Final Fantasy VI, obviously. Humongous RPG. And it felt like developers, they really understood the technology at play at this point. And they felt like they had a massive canvas to paint on. They had gone from the very basic adventures of like Dragon Warrior and that kind of thing on the original NES. And they felt like they could paint on a great scale. And Terranigma, I mean, it's like all of human history is the scope of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just thinking about it and saying it out loud, it's so crazy how you start from nothing to bringing back nature bringing back humanity and then building cities if you can figure that out you can make some really incredible cities that tell their own stories like there's so much in there 
Yeah, and then also there's the the very strange thing you can do where you can play through the game without doing any of the economic development stuff. So as you go from dungeon to dungeon, you're going from like this pre-Dark Ages area to a castle to Mm -hmm. the East Coast of America, which is somehow in maybe the 1990s, but doesn't have airplanes. (laughs) I mean, there's a skateboarding black kid, so (laughs) that's much bliss. At some point, we're going to have to get into Perel because, like, he's maybe one of my ho- most hated video game characters of all time. And, like, I mean, it's just so strange, so weird. And then you go to the parts of Russia where there's a cult that's building a future tower and an airship to uh, turn everyone into zombies and save people from death. That was a special look at some of our patron exclusive content. If you want to hear more, Head on over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Now, back to the episode. Now, it occurs to me that I did not introduce the main topic for this particular episode. Oh, gosh. Well, we should probably resolve that. Yes. This topic is another topic from a $50 patron. It's from, sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, Visa Valtteri Pimia. They want us to talk about early CD RPGs, Nadia. So here we go. We're going to be talking about early CD RPGs. So... The first thing I think when I think of CD RPGs is a lot of very fancy anime cutscenes and developers going, wow, we can put video on these things. This is amazing. Yeah, that was, well, thank you very much for your support, first of all, Vissa. Yeah, and, thank you uh, for your support. We appreciate it. This is actually a pretty cool topic because we were there when it all went down. Now, I was not someone who had any of the in between CD systems. I didn't have a Sega CD. I didn't have a, a 3DO CDI or a TurboGrafx CD. So I think I missed out on some of the more, kind of the bridge between 16 and 32-bit RPGs. And it was a very interesting time. As you said, uh, anime cutscenes galore, and not like anime cutscenes as you might even imagine them today or even in the PlayStation era. They were kind of janky and very, very loudly colored but that worked often in the game's favor, especially in the case of Lunar, which is probably the best-known uh, 16-bit CD RPG, that and its sequel, Eternal Blue. It just really suit the atmosphere of the game. And to this day, like people who owned a Sega CD will hold up Lunar and say, well, we had this. And I have to admit, yes, they did especially since I missed out on buying Silver Star Story on the PlayStation. I'm still really angry at myself about that. When the Sega CD came out, I remember that it was kind of a big deal. And a lot of game developers, or a lot of game magazines were saying, are 16-bit consoles are in trouble? Will cartridges die? CDs are here, baby! And it's true, for a while, cartridges did die, but it turned out that CDs were the passing fancy and that solid-state media was actually the way to go. 
kind of weird how that happened, huh? Like the Nintendo Switch is back to cartridges in, in its own weird way. But mm -hmm. CDs, I think the reason why maybe CD add-ons didn't really catch on is because CD players were just prohibitively expensive back then. You were looking at, I can't remember how much it was for a, C, a Sega CD, but in the hundreds easily. The benefit is that games were cheaper on CD, but you were paying, if you were paying for a Sega CD you were, or a Turbo CD add-on, uh, you were paying for something that was actually slow as hell. Like, if you think the PlayStation was slow, holy crap, imagine a CD player running off the Mega Drive processor, then, you've got, then you know what slow is. So, yeah, it, the games that come out of that, when you look at them, as I said, they're decorated very vividly with very interesting cutscenes. Often they have um, fully voice-acted bits, and most of them are English. So a lot of the time they hired, for better or for worse, actual English voice actors. And But then you'd get to the games themselves, and that's where you would live or die, because you were still looking at a game that looked very, very much like a 16-bit RPG, a uh, little sprites, top-down view, kind of a side battle system, uh, uh, enemy encounters, sometimes face-to-face. -face. But with Lunar, I think one of its strengths, as people tell it, is it was extremely long, involved, had a very interesting story written by an actual novelist, uh, and it went for a more, um, it really did aim to be more about storytelling rather than telling a story. And I, from what I hear, it's, it really, really succeeded at that. Whereas other games um, of the era, say Vi, which is the game that is actually spelt V-A-Y, so I've always been calling it Vi, but it's Vi, but that's one that did not really live up to Lunar's hype and fell by the wayside, even though it had very much the same presentation where you had the 32-bit, really cool-looking anime cutscenes and more 16-bit sort of gameplay. Yeah, it was a growing pain, to say the least. You know what surprises me, Nadia? Mm -hmm. What surprises me is that in some ways, consoles were ahead of PC, at least in America, when it came to CDs. Oh, now that's an interesting thought. Um, I could see why they'd be ahead of America, maybe not so much Japan. Japan, a lot of the games that came to the Sega CD and the PC Engine CD were ports of uh, PC games uh, from Japanese PCs. Falcom is a really great example of that. I was looking through some many of the games that were coming out in the early 90s on PC. And maybe we'll get to this when someday we do our exploration of the decades of PC gaming with RPGs. But the early 90s was not an amazing time for RPGs. A lot of people kind of talk about it in terms of it being a little bit of a drought and the the big rpg series of the 80s were getting a bit long in the tooth and the kind of the classic developers started to have a hard time keeping up with rapidly advancing technology but in the early 90s most rpgs that i could see were still coming out on floppy disks first like ultima 7 mm. that was a floppy disk first game same with betrayal at crondor now ultima 6 same deal now elder scrolls arena i believe also came out on floppy disk to start now a lot of these games did eventually come out on cd-rom but they would come out on like compilation discs a little bit later so, yeah so like 93 94 i was still buying games on floppy disks rather than on CD-ROM. CD-ROM was becoming more of a thing, but it was seen as kind of a special treat. As I said, very expensive at the time, very exclusive. Remember when like 
I have, I actually have the original copy of Star Control too, and that comes on like a billion discs. Like you'd get like a thick BLT sandwich of discs every time you uh, bought games back then. I just remember getting a, a million discs and then having to stick yep. each one in my hard drive individually in order to install the game. Yeah, and they'd all be labeled. Please insert disc A. Please insert disc B. Or you're you're on disc eight, so that yeah. you can install it. One of the things, one of the mistakes that I made was that I was editing missions from X-Wing, which came on a oh, floppy cool. disk at that time. And I was writing straight to the disk and thought oh, no. erasing games, erasing data on it. Oh, dear. That's a, first of all, a great way to just ruin your disks entirely. And as mm -hmm. you said, just save over everything important. That's an interesting thing you did. Um, you didn't know how to type C uh, colon slash. I was very new to PCs at this time. It was, I was like 10 years old and I. Oh, that's fair. So I didn't really understand how the whole like, oh, this is permanent. <laughs> you are overwriting this forever. <laughs> this, kind is, of situation. this is forever. Yeah. Uh, to your credit, I think when I was 10, I don't even think I had a computer. I think maybe uh, we used the Apple II once a week in our classroom or something like that. A lot of the games that were coming out in the early 90s on PC where, you know, they would look like any other game, but now they have voices or uh -huh. now they have better music. Um, LucasArts was releasing talky versions of its right. adventure games, for example, like Indiana Jones and the, the Fate of Atlantis. There were collector CD-ROM games for X-Wing and TIE Fighter. So a lot of games were coming out on disc first, and that included the Ultima games, and then coming out later as like a two-pack, for example, on CD that you could buy as kind of a reissue. I would say that things began to change seriously probably around 1996. That's when Diablo came out. And when Diablo came out, I think that is when games started to be a lot more CD first, right? Like mm -hmm. Magic 6 comes out. And then you get into the latter era of PC gaming in the 90s and you started getting games like Fallout and such that fully integrated voice acting, had cutscenes and all of that. But it was a weird time for PC games in the early 90s when it came to CDs. And in many ways, like when I look back, when I compare the two eras, I almost feel like consoles in some ways had the advantage. Yeah, it was, it really was an odd time because yes, you had the CD attachments for PC Engine and for uh, Sega CD, but 1995, I would say, as you said, was around the time that maybe this technology started to get a little more accessible, a little cheaper. Of course, the PlayStation came around and really blew away our expectations of what a CD-based medium could do, whereas Nintendo was over here chunking away with their cartridges, and the, the contrast was very, very apparent. So many games... On those consoles, the, so many of the early Sega CD games were just really bad because they were integrating full motion video and whatnot. Oh, uh, what's funny about those is you'll find people who make fun of those old like Sewer Shark and the Fireman game because they use cheap Canadian actors and they all have these apparently Canadian accents. Don't ask me what a Canadian accent sounds like. What do I know? But yeah, they just have people making fun of the dialogue, <laughs> the, the quote unquote Canadian dialect. It would be like these postage stamp size FMV videos with just the most atrocious acting in the history of the universe. That's why I think RPGs did the right thing by just putting in anime scenes, because 
even though they weren't the most smoothly animated thing in the world, they still looked really good for what they were. They had a very distinct charm. And I think it actually really caught your attention in an era when RPGs were still trying to do things like keep anime characters off boxes. Something about seeing that actual celebrated anime aesthetic really kind of spoke to me back then, even if I couldn't afford uh, a Sega CD. Well, going back to Blizzard for a second, they really benefited from the fact that they also were not using FMV. Um, Whereas Command & Conquer had FMV, and it was a contemporary of Blizzard, and it became kind of this cute artifact, right? Blizzard was kind of ahead of the game in that it had CG cutscenes in mm. World War Two, World War Two, Warcraft Two, <laughs> and Diablo Two, or and Diablo, and while you know they certainly looked dated, they looked incredible at the time. And in many ways, they're certainly not as dated as FMV from the mid '90s is. No, no, definitely not. Although I think Command and Conquer's FMVs belong in a museum. I think they're just next level. So kudos to them for just really hamming it up and getting into their roles, but. Most you will find people who swear by Sewer Shark. There are a lot of fans of Sewer Shark out there for some reason, but yeah, they're all like overly hammy actors who are just really kind of cringe-inducing because they're trying to be with the attitude at the time, which was very '90s and cool. And hey, stop playing those baby games. Play a real game. And yay, I'm playing an interactive DVD menu technically while my friends are still playing Mario. And yeah, so many games that were coming out on the Sega CD got very poor reviews because they didn't add a lot except for load times. <laughs> Hooray! I was actually digging through um, the history of games that came to the Sega CD. A lot were quote unquote upgraded ports of the Sega Genesis games or games that were released on other 16 bit consoles. Yeah, Eye of the Beholder is a standout that's worth mentioning because it's pretty much the same game we got on the Super Nintendo, more or less, but has a new soundtrack by Yuzo Koshiro, who is the composer for ActRaiser, which is, of course, an excellent, excellent soundtrack, one of the best on the SNES. Yeah, there were many high-quality soundtracks that ended up coming out for early CD, 16-bit CD games, and I think that's their primary legacy. Like, Popful Mail had a phenomenal soundtrack, so... Popful Mail, I had no idea about this little bit of stupid trivia. Popful Mail was originally going to be localized as a Sonic RPG called Sister Sonic, where you play as Sonic the Hedgehog's long-lost sister. And apparently, I don't know how people got wind of this, but they were so furious at the idea that they sent in letters to Sega saying, please stop, just give us the game as it is. And I'm just laughing now, trying to think of an angry snail mail writing campaign. That's something that just does not exist anymore. Either way, it worked. And we got Popful Mail as is, uh, localized by um, probably by Working Designs, I think it was. But I am now wondering, in what dimension does this Sister Sonic game exist? And holy crap, can you imagine Sega these days signing off on some randos making a Sega a Sonic RPG with a an already established game. I I can't even begin to think about it. That is really wild, honestly. Speaking of the 90s, if you ever go back and read the book Game Over, I believe it Mm. opens with Nolan Bushnell pitching the idea of multimedia. Multimedia. It's going to be the next big thing. It's coming. And Microsoft, over at Microsoft, they have their super secret multimedia division and people wearing shirts saying... I could tell you about multimedia, but if I did, I'd have to kill you. Like, <laughs> it's like multimedia is the big buzzword of the early 90s. And what it actually meant was 
they were basically just putting Wikipedia on CD-ROMs, right? I think when they said multimedia, they meant, oh, here's a machine that can do everything. Like, oh, you can play games, you can watch TV, you can watch movies. And back then, you think about how clunky the technology still was. I don't think that really took off because it was expensive, it was slow. And gosh, even in the future, when you think about it, when all these consoles tried to be everything, uh, everyone said, no, no, thank you. So that just doesn't exist anymore. Multimedia was a long game, but it eventually failed. Multimedia was the NFTs of the early 90s. <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. Except it wasn't destroying the environment. Well, one would hope. Well, maybe it was. Directly. It was just differently because then everybody tossed out their freaking CDs. Yay, e-waste, especially if you want to talk about multimedia, here's a perfect example is uh, Dragon's Lair for the arcades, which I think it came out in 82, 83, early 80s, either way. It was mind-blowing because, of course, it was all done with Don Bluth's animation. And again, you had no idea at the time you were just playing an uh, interactive DVD uh, menu because it, it was so cool. But the point is, this game ran on Laserdisc machines that were not ha- not meant to handle all this constant jumping back and forth. So the machines got junked so often because the you just fry the Laserdisc player and there you go. There's the beginning of a big pile of e-waste right there. Well, Nadia, if there was any studio that was a big winner from the early, early days of CDs, it has to be Working Designs, right? A company so. that just managed to fill in the gaps in many ways in localizing these relatively niche kind of B-tier, C-tier JRPGs and finding an audience. And so much of their appeal was the fact that they were on CD and had voices or had these gorgeous anime cutscenes, or had really spectacular soundtracks. And working designs really leaned into that. It was pre-anime boom of the late 90s, but it kind of presaged it in many ways. Yeah, working designs, if you want to talk about filling a niche, that was it right there. Without them, I doubt we would have gotten many, if any, RPGs for the Sega CD. Other than Falcom, they were the ones who were bringing over these games and really giving them the voice acting they deserved because even, and it wasn't fantastic. It's not winning any Emmys, but for the time, it was really well done. Uh, localizing even things like the opening music for Lunar is a totally English song now. Yeah, they are still contentious because working designs was really really infamous for getting a little too uh free with this localization and putting in uh pop culture jokes about there were a lot about bill clinton for some reason they were really obsessed with bill clinton and the whole blowjob thing i mean that was the height of comedy in the mid 90s going through crazy development hell with magic knight ray earth oh right that was a real nightmare for them Yeah, go back and listen to our 90s anime RPGs episode with Bob and Henry for more details on that. But they put out Lunar the Silver Star in 1992, and and that kind of became probably their most popular and or famous uh, release in North America. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Lunar Games eventually released, received, quote-unquote, complete versions that came out on the PlayStation sometime later. Yeah, I've heard nothing but praise for Silver Star Story, and like I said, I'm still I'm mad I did not get it. I mean, the gameplay of Lunar the Silver Star isn't that amazing. Mostly people remember, I think, again, the anime cutscenes, because if you look back at it, 
had a top-down world map, kind of many base fights with enemies, not that amazing of a cut of a battle system, and other mechanics that weren't that different from 16-bit games. I mean, we just talked about Terranigma. And if you put Lunar of the Silver Star story, Silver Star and Terranigma side by side, Terranigma blows it away, right? But Silver Star in many ways, it's, it's a solid RPG that benefits in some ways from CDs. I also think you have to consider that the Mega Drive, Sega, and Genesis in general were a little bit lacking for RPGs outside of Fantasy Star. So it's good that even though you had to buy the CD attachment, you still got a very solid RPG, especially for its time. This was mm. before Final Fantasy VI. I think Final Fantasy II was out by this point. Uh, and it's to be honest, Final Fantasy II did look primitive next to uh, the Silver Star. So there is that. And again, this is a True. game. I was just about- comparing a game that came out in 1995 to a game that came out in 1992. So please feel free to send hate mail my way. <laughs> uh, you also have to consider how quickly graphics grew in leaps and bounds back then. It doesn't really happen as much now. But we were thinking of CDs as this giant technological leap up, right? Like the way that people were hyping yeah. CDs, like so much more space. Just think of how amazing games would look on them. And the truth is that games didn't look any any better on CD, ultimately. No, it was all about how that space was used, which I think is the reason why I don't think anybody was really blown away by CDs until Final Fantasy VII came around. Yeah, and that was when... CDs truly were taking hold in, you know, late 90s, 1997, thereabouts. 1997, yeah, yeah. So until then, though, um, if you were lucky enough to have one of those CD attachments, you got to enjoy some really unique stuff that, in many cases, has not been re-released or you, you can find anywhere else. And meanwhile, I mean, if you want to talk about early, early CD, I mean, Working Designs was practically the only North American company actually... Uh, working closely with the TurboGrafx CD. I mean, they were the company that localized Cosmic Fantasy 2 and Dungeon Explorer 2 for North America, which... uh, So if you want to talk about being ahead of the game when it came to CD, I mean, there you go, right? Yeah, I have to give Working Designs credit for all its foibles. It cared a lot about JRPGs. Victor Island, I suppose, was a huge fan he wanted to bring them over and the main thing that bugs me is i believe in making localizations you know fun and and adding a little depth and flavor to them but not going completely out into the stratosphere that's number one number two and this bothers me more than it probably should anytime you turn on a game that look that um working designs localized their name is like front and center first like working designs presents kind of making it seem like they made the game well, Lunar Eternal Blue came out in 1994 and included fine-tuning to Lunar's balance uh, for the North American release, and it included toning down some boss battles and taking out the new Save Anywhere feature and making players spend in-game currency to save? One, one thing that uh, Working Designs did that was pretty cool is they worked closely with the developers of the original Japanese game to retool the difficulty for North American audiences as they, they saw fit. And for some reason, Victor Ireland thought that Lunar 2 would be too easy if he could save anywhere the way he could in the Japanese release. So uh, there's some sort of currency you get after battle that you use to save. And I absolutely despise the idea of currency-based saving. I think it's so stupid. Don't do it. But 
they did it. And just to add that little extra bit of quote unquote difficulty, I suppose. And uh, yeah, yeah. To go back to Returnal for a hot second, the big debate is over the fact that runs in Returnal can take you two to three hours to complete. And that game does not have a save function. Oh, uh, I think I heard something about that. Can't you just kill yourself and save that way? Well, there's no auto saving is the problem. So, oh, dear. Yeah. So you can, I mean, it's not like, yes, there is saving, like your progress as, because you're making progress with each subsequent playthrough, there is a mm-hmm. save in that way, but you can't, for example, have a quick save in the middle of a run and then put turn off your PS5 and go away and do something else. If you turn off the game, your run is over. You have to start over. Oh, so what do you do in that case? If you have to like take off? Or it's like something? the equivalent of playing Super Mario Brothers 3 on the NES back in the day. You just leave the Super Mario, you just leave the NES on and turn <laughs> the TV off. I never did that. I was always like terrified. I ruined my NES doing that. I cer- certainly did because Mario 3 took forever to beat. It was not a short game, was it? Like, especially if you weren't warping. Holy crap, it's still pretty long. I mean, Returnal, you can put the PS5 in rest mode. The problem is you can't play any other games because there's mm. no like quick save functionality in the same way as the Xbox Series X. And you're at the mercy of potential firmware updates or yeah. the PS5 just straight up crashing. It is known to do if you put it into rest mode. So plenty of other problems. But that's neither here nor there on this particular conversation. Let's talk about some other Sega CD RPGs. Nadia, they include Illusion City, which came out in 1991. It's a Japanese-only game. It's based in a demon-ruined version of Hong Kong. I'm into it. And it's by Microband, the developers of my one weakness, according to Nadia, Princess Maker 2. I didn't know you were a big Princess Maker, Nadia. <laughs> I played Princess Maker 2. There was a kind of a, a fad, if you will, with Princess Maker 2 because it was being distributed for free. And we were all playing it a little bit. And yeah, I, I I liked it a lot. I My first run, I had a little girl and I sold her to a dragon. The oh. dragon liked her, wanted to marry her. I said, okay, if you want to get married, go ahead and get married to the dragon. So that was kind of cute. <laughs> Nadia's one ambition in life is to marry a dragon. I'm already married, but yes, I would. Uh, I would take on a dragon. Oh come Why on, not? Nadia! It's 2021. Polly is in. <laughs> you can marry a dragon too. I am open-minded. But in Illusion City, you play as Tyron, a demon hunter who must unravel the mystery of a demon-run corporation. They're all demons. So many demons. Uh, that popped up amidst ruins of Hong Kong, more punk than cyberpunk. It's described by some fans as Fantasy Star meets Megaten, and it sounds kind of amazing, and it's a shame it didn't get an official localization. And it had eight discs? It had eight discs. Can you imagine? Holy crap, just putting it in and out. And it, so that's probably why it didn't come to North America, and I get the impression there's probably a lot of text to translate that no one really wanted to bother with. Heck, I was just impressed that... Final Fantasy VIII had four discs. I mean, eight discs? And it's not exactly a fancy-looking game. It has a lot of... Um, it's kind of dissected into different windows, the way you got with a lot of old uh, CD-based RPGs back in the day. And the battle scenes, they do kind of resemble Fantasy Star, where you're behind... Uh, you're, you're looking behind over the, the character's shoulders, and they're looking at the enemies in front of you. And I was watching some footage where this party had like a robot and it was just using a chain gun against all the enemies. And it just looked really cool. I love the idea that apparently there's some sort of virus or something that wipes out Hong Kong and then demons take over. It's like, wow, that's actually really cool. Why wouldn't demons take over? That sounds like a neat concept for an RPG, but 
everybody is really into fantasy RPGs, so we don't get enough of that. Yeah, it was extremely sci-fi. You were actually playing as a demon hunter who was, as I said, looking to determine why this horrible mega corporation run by demons suddenly sprung up. In 1993, Vey was released. It's, or is it pronounced Vi? Which one is it? Vi. Vi. Vi, don't you know? Vey or Vi? That's another working design's localization, though not nearly as beloved as the Lunar series. The story involves killer robots from outer space terrorizing a peaceful medieval world. So it's cool by default. Nonetheless, it's kind of unremarkable. Even its anime scenes aren't as charming or colorful as Lunar's, which came a year before. Still has its fans, though. Nevertheless, gameplay isn't a huge step up from the 16-bit RPGs at the time. You travel across an overworld as an SD sprite, and then engage in battles head-on. It's actually on the iPhone if you want to play it. Oh, really? But the iPhone has uh, a totally different localization from the working designs. And it's actually interesting if you want to kind of take a look at what working designs did versus the quote-unquote like authentic translations. There are people out there who have done comparison videos of... Uh, uh, kind of lets you see how working designs jazz things up, for lack of a better term. No Bill Clinton jokes, then. No Bill, I, I think those are gone. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and it, you're right about the cutscenes not being as colorful or as nice as those in Lunar. Lunar had some really spectacular anime cutscenes, whereas this one, I mean, it's not as bad as them, but it reminds me a little bit of the Philip CDI Zeldas. <laughs> Whoa. I know it's like okay, it's not nearly as bad. It's just it's not quite as bad. The flat looking characters and the flat colors. Um yeah. bring to mind maybe budget animation. And so that's just it was extreme yeah. It's extremely budget, especially if you look at it in motion. The battle scenes look nice though. It was it, as I said, it's basically you're looking at a standard sixteen bit RPG where you're saving a princess, whereas in Lunar, you are exploring a world and gathering friends and you know dealing with dragons and stuff like that in 1993 we got dark wizard a hex turn-based strategy game by sega got a lot of praise from western reviewers for being extremely deep supposedly had around 300 hours of gameplay you play up to four separate stories as four different characters a prince a cavalry soldier a sorceress or even a vampire nadia it's your game stories don't cross over canonically but i really like the idea of playing a bad guy after all, the kingdom in Dark Wizard is on the verge of being annihilated, vampires included. Why wouldn't they fight for the cause? It reminds me of the childlike empress in Neverending Story, says Nadia, but I guess that's a discussion for another time. Have you ever read the Neverending Story, Kat? I watched the movie. The movie's a little bit different, and actually it's very, very different. They kind of cut the book in half and said, okay, we're done. And I mean, I love the movie, don't get me wrong, but the book is one of my favorites of all time. But the idea being that the childlike empress is the neutral kind of force keeping everything together. And no matter how good or evil someone is living in Fantasia, they are they know they have to protect the childlike empress and her existence because she is the reason they are there. She just does not judge. And if she were to disappear, so would all of them. So I like the idea of, well, here's a bad guy, but there's a threat that's much bigger than he is. So he wants to exist as much as a good guy does. So He's even though he's a jerk and maybe his causes are all pretty bad, he's going to fight for it. Apparently, there's still fans of Dark Wizard to this day. 
interesting to hear it. Like I've I've listened to reviews and watched them on YouTube and stuff like that. It's a very deep game. You have those four different storylines you go through. Each one is different. And yeah, it's uh I guess in a pre-Fire Emblem world, it must have been a really good game to have around. It wasn't a pre-Fire Emblem world because it came well, out know, a couple years ago. Western. <laughs> Western Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem came out in 91. Dark Wizard came out in 93. Speaking of Fire Emblem, Shining Force CD came out in 94. And it's a remake of Shining Force Gaiden 1 and 2 for the Game Gear. Interestingly, the first Gaiden never got a translation, so Shining Force CD is the only way to experience the game, which might be why Shining Force CD is criticized by critics and fans. It's a good game. But outside of some graphical touch-ups and an orchestrated soundtrack, it's very familiar. Yeah, um, to hear fans say it, Shining Force CD did get phoned in, disappointingly, especially next to uh, Dark Wizard. And I don't know if it's entirely a remake. I think there might be some new content there. But if you look at the screenshots, you can see it looks extremely familiar. Like It looks almost it looks no like different a Game at Gear all. game. Exactly. Like guess that is a little disappointing. I can see why... Uh, Shining Force fans who always get the short end of the stick. I can see why they're a little bit miffed about that. And finally, there was Pop of Mail in 91, a sword-swinging action-adventure game with a very anime aesthetic. I love the opening cutscene in, in, in it, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it's fantastic. Nadia. Action RPG. Worth mentioning here because Sega initially planned to localize the game as a Sonic the Hedgehog RPG, interestingly, called Sister Sonic. <laughs> Where are you? That sounds like a fanfic. Where you, wherein you play as Sonic's long-lost sister. An angry letter-writing campaign ensued. Lol, I can no longer imagine a culture powered by snail mail outrage, and the idea was scrapped. Can you imagine that, uh, the forums at that time? I'm sure that uh, Usenet forums were... Oh, just Usenet must have, been, must have been on fire. Working designs localized the original game sometime later. Hard to imagine a world where people would sonic reject a Sonic RPG. Maybe they hated the idea of playing as his sister. I would say it's that latter one, Nadia. They, yeah. Nobody wants to be Sonic's girl, like sister. Come on, girls. Ew. Ew. She's pink. I bet they would make her pink. Side note, Sonic's localization was scattershot, but really interesting in the 90s. Yeah, you basically had Sega of Japan and Sega of America and the the two never met in twain. Like they just were so separate from each other. We had like uh, Sonic Sadam and Sonic Adventure, the Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, and they had whatever they were go was going on in Japan. And just it was a real free for all. It made for some really interesting stuff. Not to say some really interesting fan fiction, some of which I still have. Meanwhile, there was the PC Engine CD. There are a lot of models of the PC Engine CD and the TurboGrafx-16 CD, some of which we covered back on our console RPG quest for the PC Engine. Super confusing, but the point is the PC Engine was the first get console to get a CD attachment back in 1988. Wow. Yeah, they were really ahead of it. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of 1988, I just saw an amazing video of Roger Ebert showing off his incredible uh, home theater system from 1988. And oh, it is beautiful. a trip. When he's talking about Laserdisc and stuff like that, it's great. <laughs> this is the future. The future. He calls it his Orson Welles system. And he's pointing out how he has uh, surround sound and all of that stuff. It's terrific. I hope, like, if he, okay, if he's a real Orson Welles fan, I hope he, like, put on Unicron from Transformers, the movie, and just, like, turned the bass way up. If summoned you here for a purpose. 
a Laserdisc and not one, but two VHS players, Nadia. Ooh, so he can copy shit. <laughs> yeah. He said no Betamax because he felt that it was on his last legs at the time. And it was true at the time. But Betamax had the best co- picture, Nadia. Oh, I've heard all the arguments. I do not remember the arg- the. I put it this way. When Snake said, oh, no, Beta in The Simpsons, I had no idea what that joke meant. And when he was showing off the Laserdisc, he was going, look at this. This is amazing. It looks like something that the astronauts would eat off of in 2001. <laughs> i actually hear laserdiscs did extremely well in asia whereas more or less ignored in north america i mean it was the best way the best possible picture for quite a long time you know you wanted to watch star wars on laserdisc until dvds came out our school had a laserdisc player that's awesome yeah i was laserdisc was very much out of sight out of mind for me because we did not have one we only had a vhs player so as far as I'm concerned, as far as I was concerned, laser displays didn't exist. As f- so, as for PC Engine CD games, if you buy the TurboGrafx Mini, Nadia, you can get a lot of these. For example, Easebook One and Two that is on the TurboGrafx CD Mini. Did I mention that I play my TurboGrafx Mini quite a bit? actually. Yeah, you mentioned you were like really into it because of the shooting games. Probably not so much because of Easebook One and Two, though. Yeah, I don't really play the RPGs on it so much because the RPGs are quite dated. But the shoot 'em ups and, of course, Rondo of Blood are still very good. Yeah, Ease Book One and Two. Um, they the gameplay is very primitive, but the localization and the cutscenes and everything actually done very well for the time. The voice acting is good. There's a lot of anime cutscenes. Uh, Ease Four is on there as well, I believe. And that was the last of the bumpy, bumpy games where you just kind of bump into enemies and kill them. But the presentation on that game was very, very good. Uh, Falcom put a lot of effort into it. I agree. Whenever the anime intro pops up, because I've let the uh, Turbo Gra- the PC Engine run on attract mode, basically, and occasionally like the opening cutscene for Ease will pop up, I'll be like, wow, that's gorgeous. I kind of want to play Ease Book 1 and 2 now. <laughs> No, you don't. Uh, I love these, but the bumpy, bumpy ones, I just was, I can never get into them. But the soundtrack slaps, Nadia. Yeah, that's, that's, I made sure to make that note in the notes because the soundtrack does. They've always, the soundtracks have always slapped in these games. We were just talking about Terra Enigma and Quintet has a, a lot of connections to Ease 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so that is a line of connection right there. Same energy that, uh, no, you were not slowing down for a second kind of thing. There was also Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes, which came out in 91. Nadia, psh, loser franchise, nothing will come of it. Nadia. <laughs> I was kidding. Just kidding. Wink. Wink. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Sorry, I'm thinking of Mario 3 again. It's the sixth entry in the Dragon Slayer series and the first entry in the Legend of Heroes series. Legend of Heroes would eventually branch off into the Tales of series. The Legend of Heroes is pretty standard behind-the-camera RPG battle camera system stuff. An unremarkable start, I guess. But again, if you had a TurboGrafx CD, this is what you got. And by what you got, I mean the world's best voice acting. And you put that in quotes, so I assume those are scare quotes. Ah, but you mustn't forget that Naja yielded to what he claimed was a higher decision. If that is the case, then I think it is safe to assume that the powers that be have left it in our hands to maintain nature's balance. 
Maybe this time, nature used nausea to warn us. And finally, we have our bonus game, Nadia. Secret of Mana, the canceled Nintendo CD game. Yes, uh... Secret of Mana, as some people probably know by now, it, it was originally intended to be a game on the Nintendo SNES uh, add-on that was in production called, called the, PlayStation, the Nintendo PlayStation, which is a name that still blows my mind. If you've been keeping up with retro news at all, you'll know that they actually found a prototype of the system, which also blows my mind. I saw it. Did you see it, like, in person? I did. It was on display at PAX Prime, I believe, in their video game museum. Oh man, I am so I want to I want to fall on my knees before it and just like take it in. It was kind of cool. I was also kind of nondescript, but I was like, "Wow, look, Nintendo PlayStation." Phenomenal. It's just a really 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 interesting part of history. I'm so glad that it belongs in a museum and that's where it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm also glad that it's in a museum. Uh, that little Nintendo stabbing Sony in the back and publicly humiliating them completely changed video game history in so many ways and sure did i'm not saying that sony's hands were clean here they kind of were a little bit underhanded themselves but what nintendo did was i think hearing it by japanese corporate standards was literally the worst thing you could possibly do and they did it well yeah i mean it wasn't that nintendo was screwing over some foreign uh, company like Philips or whatever no they were Stabbing Sony in the back, a another Japanese company, which is not something you do, and then citing and going with a foreign company instead in Philips. And people are just like, whoa, that that is crazy. But that was uh, how Yamauchi rolled back in the days. I'm thinking about that now. And Yamauchi was a very traditional businessman, from what I understand. Why did he think that was a good idea? He was cutthroat as hell. He was like the most cutthroat <laughs> dude ever. I mean, he came up with the whole licensing system. And he stepped on, uh, he stepped on shop owners in both America and Japan. He, like he ruled by terror and fear. There's a reason that so many people were willing to dump, ditch Nintendo to go over to the PlayStation in the mid '90s. They were sick of him. It's funny you hear about people now complaining about how cutthroat and evil Nintendo was. You children do not know. You do not remember Yamauchi. He was an inveterate cutthroat businessman. He built the Nintendo that we know and love today. You have to give him that. He made a lot of stupid mistakes, but he was also like the most canny businessman who ever existed. He was smart enough to know that he was not a creator, and he was smart enough to go to the likes of uh, Miyamoto and say, make games for me, or go to Gunpei Yoko and say, instead of scolding him for making toys, he would say, okay, make toys for us, make games for us. He was He was smart. He was extremely smart, even when he was stupid. But Nintendo was making the Nintendo PlayStation because CD attachments were all the rage based on the TurboGrafx CD and the PC Engine CD and Sega CD and all of that jazz, but ultimately decided not to do it. And a casualty was The Secret of Mana, which was initially planned for the system. And when the add-on was canceled, the game was stuffed onto a SNES cartridge and the results were mixed, I should say. Yeah, see, I love Secret of Mana absolutely love it but the the extent to which it's uh downgrade affected the game is is a subject of debate that still goes on and on because you will see things on the secret amount of map uh that do not translate to the actual gameplay and you'll wonder okay was that a missing feature there are a lot of bugs in the game and you figure okay well was this because the game was put onto a cartridge instead of a cd and then Square will tell you, no, actually, it looked completely different on the CD. So we'll never know the truth. But 
the fact is that Secret of Mana was supposed to be a CD game, and it wasn't, and it was affected for that in some regard. The biggest missed opportunity of the remake was not getting the old, the complete version of Secret of Mana out there for the first time. That would have made it worth it, in my opinion. As it was, it was still the same flawed game. Yeah, I don't know if that version exists. Like, we've talked in the past with older uh, Pantheon episodes, especially Final Fantasy VIII, about how source code would just be written over because data was at a premium back then or people just didn't care. And I don't know how far along Secret of Mana CD was, so I don't know if it's possible for Square Enix to dig up something and say, oh, this is what the game originally was and and put it on a CD. I, I sure wish that they would do that. And maybe even if they can't do that, at least rebuild the game so that it was more in their original vision. But who was left who can still do that, I wonder? Yeah, and the problem was that that game was being made on a shoestring budget. So it yeah. they just didn't have the bandwidth to create a lot of uh, new material, honestly, which is Square Enix's fault. They should have given that game an actual budget. They should have, because I, I, it is a little disappointing how they just kind of did not throw any money whatsoever at that game. And it's a really really important game for a lot of people and just kind of meh well nadia let's wrap this up so lunar fans can start writing their angry emails at me for giving their favorite <laughs> game short shrift final thoughts i think maybe this was our first real taste of what localization was about thanks to working designs i think ted wolsey really carried that over and you know, made it just a real big topic of discussion for people. But that's when I started to realize, hey, there is something extra tr to translation. And I think it's actually extremely interesting. Uh, working designs for its flaws, at least they kind of gave us, they took that risk. They gave us those games. And also, I should have mentioned, they gave us some really nice pack-in stuff with it. Like they always made sure to pack in a lot of junk that would be really appreciated, like cloth maps and embossed covers and all the cool stuff that PC games came with back then, but cartridge games didn't. I think that it was the first taste of the anime boom. That yes. Some a little bit later. And when we look back on those games, we are feeling the nostalgia of that very particular time in anime history. 80s slash 90s, early 90s anime had a very distinct look to it, a very distinct color. And of course, as we've already said a couple times, uh, it gave us some bump and soundtrack, so it wasn't a total waste. No, no, definitely not. And this was these were sound out these were standout soundtracks in a time when the SNES was giving us some of the best soundtracks of all time. And on the PC, I think early CD was emblematic of RPGs kind of awkward transition period uh, from the 80s, where you had that initial wave of franchises like Ultima and Wizardry into the second boom of the late 90s when you had the isometric RPGs from Black Isle and Fallout and all of that. So so there was kind of an awkward transition point that was happening in the mid-90s, but we eventually got there. And that's when we got Fallout 97, Diablo 96, and that was when I would say our CD RPGs truly got started on PC. The early 90s were certainly baby steps for CD games, but we got there. We, we certainly learned that Nintendo was wrong and Sony was right. Well, we certainly learned that CDs were the dominant medium going forward. We still use CDs to this day. Actually, no, we don't use <laughs> optical media anymore. That's dead. Nobody cares about that anymore. No, I care. I love you, optical media. No, I don't. I can't even be arsed to get up and change CDs these days on my games. That's why I download everything. 
God, I come from a generation where you had to actually stand up and change your channels manually. And here I am like, oh, I don't want to insert a game. Let me just have to stand up. I'm going to download it. You have the game already. Yeah, but I don't want to stand up. <laughs> and yet, meanwhile, I'm going to totally pre-order that limited run games version of Castlevania that just the Castlevania collection that just came out. Because mm -hmm. heck yeah, physical media. You got to preserve it somehow. I have to admit I am part of the problem. Okay, thank you so much to our $50 patron for the idea. We've got one more to go before we wrap up this particular round. And we are really enjoying going through these very interesting ideas that our listeners are passing on to us. Keep them coming. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. And this week, in honor of our Terranigma Pantheon discussion, this week's entry is Bloody Mary, which is kind of an anti-choice. It's not a great and epic choice. It's actually one of the worst boss battles in that game. But it's very memorable. It's a very memorable boss battle, Nadia. Uh, put it this way. If you Google... Terranigma, you'll find guys that just tell you up front, okay, here's how to beat Bloody Mary so you can enjoy the rest of the damn game. Nadia, tell me about Bloody Mary. Tell me why Bloody Mary is so annoying. Terranigma, as you might know, is a game that's all about going, resurrecting the world and experiencing a kind of alternate version of its history. And at some point, you get to the castle of Bloody Mary who I forget what happened she murdered her sons or beheaded someone I, I don't know who the real Bloody Mary is to be honest with you I just know if you sit in a mirror and say her name she appears some stupid schoolyard crap like that but anyway in Terranigma she is kind of a level gate where if you are not the right level you will do scratch damage if you do any damage at all she hits really really hard and the best way to beat her is to use magic, which you have probably been totally ignoring to this point because as great as Terranigma is, its magic system is just really convoluted for no real good reason. I would sometimes use healing magic. You're basically looking at a beheaded witch queen thing who's running, going all over the place. You can't touch her. It's really frustrating. It's not a great battle. It's not a highlight of the game, especially the Dragoon Castle sequence beforehand. It's not a lot of fun. It's a kind of a stealth section. The game has much better boss battles than this thing, but at least it's infamous. You'll never forget going up against Bloody Mary. You can't. It's in your nightmares. It's a very pretty boss battle. I mean, the actual sprite of Bloody Mary is quite gorgeous. As I recall, she was kind of terrifying, but yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, not pretty, but terrifyingly gorgeous, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's a word for it not a fan at all of that particular boss battle. There are a couple of boss battles in Terranigma where they can get a little difficult if you don't really use magic. So it is worth picking up magic rocks and learning how to use magic. But you also have to consider, well, we live in an age where people are warned about these sort of things long, long before they get there. So I'm sure that anyone who says, oh, I want to play Terranigma, the answer is immediately, great, it's a great game. Watch out for Bloody Mary. Here's what you need to do. Uh, as you said in our discussion with, about Terranigma, you put a perfect example, which is the, um, what's the area in, in Dark Souls that everyone hates because it's, it's slow as hell and it's full of poison. The Blight Town of Terranigma? That's exactly it. Yeah, it's the Blight Town of Terranigma. 
I think every game, every even the greatest games, always had that Blight Town or that Bloody Mary, so you just kind of take it in stride. So people were wondering, can we give tips on how to beat Bloody Mary if they happen to be playing Terranigma as part of our epic boss battle discussion? Well, here is how you beat Bloody Mary. Either level up to at least level 25 and prepare for a very long and boring battle in which she will be shooting a lot of spam at you that you have to dodge, or equip the Zap Ring and just be prepared to use a lot of uh, screen magic on her because... For the most part, she is quite hard to hit safely without taking too much damage, and it's better to attack her from afar. So use a lot of magic, especially the zap rings, and you should be able to beat her. It's just going to be kind of a slog. She is certainly beatable. As I recall, I think she was floating, so if you wanted to hit her, you had to like jump and and slash, but definitely the zap rings are your best, best bet. Just stock up on them, spam them. It's a little cheap, but you know what? So is she. So you you, you want to be cheap to me? I'm going to be cheap to you. I, I don't have standards. Don't try, Don't test me. All right. That is our epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. If you have a boss battle you would like to highlight, drop it in the mailbag channel or on our Discord or send me an email at cat at bloodgodpod.com. And that is it for this week's episode of Acts of the Blood God. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor. Go and leave a comment, a positive review on the podcatcher of your choice. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And if you enjoy the show, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where you get access to all of our special episodes, our Pantheon episodes, and all of that jazz. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk more about RPGs, the genre that we love. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventures.